Hey folks, we're back with uh, chapter five of James Dashuk's uh, Clearing the Plains read-along. This one's titled uh, Expansion of Settlement and Erosion of Health During the HBC Monopoly, uh, 1821 to 1829. This chapter picks up after the end of the fur trade wars or the Pemmican Wars. Uh, the Northwest Company uh, was forced to merge into the Hudson's Bay Company, re-establishing the HBC's fur trade monopoly in the Hudson Bay Basin. Um, though it did bring some stability to the region, uh, the re-establishment of the company monopoly, it didn't solve all the problems. It was, it was viewed as a tyranny, as a corporate monopoly would be by default. A London clerk by the name of George Simpson uh, became the governor at this time. Uh, he was the uh, unofficial viceroy the unofficial viceroy in HBC-controlled territory. He was known as the Little Emperor. Uh, he was also the first man known to have circumnavigated the globe by land, which is interesting. I didn't know that was uh, possible. I thought you had to uh, cross some water at some point, but uh, I guess uh, you can thank uh, Wikipedia for that tidbit. Um, he was considered to have governed very efficiently. This is the corporate definition of a efficiency. His guiding administrative principle was a maximum return from minimum investment, uh, which is just like our de facto societal uh, algorithm here. That's nothing new. It is the basic algorithm for capitalism. Um, it's the governing principle of our current world. It's what it's the golden rule of our age. Um, this the, the whole of capitalist philosophy is contained in this maxim maximum return minimum investment okay what did simpson do uh he was in charge for a while for most of the monopoly period um almost 50 years at least 40 years a long time so he uh he came in he started doing he started enacting a, a program of corporate downsizing with the merger of the northwest company and the hbc there were a lot of redundant forts and fur trading posts factories uh and such that uh you know weren't required anymore the result of this downsizing as would be predictable was a labor crisis uh you're putting uh people out of work at this point you're closing down their workplaces and uh they are unemployed uh most fur trade workers were in the region were now out of a job the trade of liquor to the Northwest was curtailed and then prohibited. So this is an early prohibition of liquor. Canada had a prohibition era. This was it. I guess this wasn't Canada at the time, uh, but still it's a liquor prohibition. Uh, you can say what you want about that. The, uh, like the unscrupulous use of uh, alcohol in the previous era, the fur trade wars era was really out of control. Like uh, if you remember from the last chapter, it was basically it was basically like a free-for-all. The fur trade wars era like put the American Old West uh, to shame as far as like uh, lawlessness and unscrupulous uh, behavior goes, I guess you would say. Uh, wanton violence um, and exploitation. I guess that's the only way you could put it. But I guess that's just the story of the entire fur trade, uh, the, whole, the whole thing. So in addition to the uh, liquor prohibition... Uh, the HBC also worked to prevent the spread of contagious disease through a widespread mass uh, vaccination program. Uh, very interesting. Again, living in the uh, the COVID era, this was the first mass vaccination program um, in the area. People being vaccine skeptics or refusing the vaccine or whatnot uh, due to various reasons, one of them being skepticism or distrust of gigantic or the so-called big pharma gigantic pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer uh, developing uh, vaccines for for profit say what you want about that Pfizer etc type vaccines were not the first type of uh, corporately developed uh, vaccines uh, the HPC did it in the uh, in the 1800s pretty crazy so that's a public health uh, measure I guess something else to keep in mind is like uh, there's it's one thing to be skeptical about uh, giant corporations produce, producing uh, vaccines for profit and uh, being against that. That's obviously uh, pretty gross. 
but uh, taking public health measures um, is not a new thing, and uh, that's this is a corporate-led uh, public health initiative. Um, the growth of the Red River settlement led to fundamental changes in the demography and economy of the Northwest. With the closing of the forts, uh, people are drifting into the Red River settlement, kind of like, ironically, what led to the Scottish settlers being shipped to the Red River settlement as a result of the Highland Clearances. Uh, the uh, corporate downsizing in the Hudson's Bay region is kind of the same thing. People have lost their jobs. Uh, they don't have a means of supporting themselves. And so they're drifting to the uh, major population and administrative center of the region, which is the Red River Settlement. The demand for meat in the colony has increased. This puts further strains on the prairie bison herds. Conflict is growing now as a demand for meat is now outstripping the supply. Um, and also the increasing population in the colony meant that uh, disease could incubate more easily and improve transportation routes to the big population centers in the east, uh, also increase the spread of, of pathogens. Um, the Red River Colony isn't like a, an isolated sort of island of, uh, of population uh, anymore. Transportation routes are being improved. This is still pre-railroad, pre-highway or whatever. I think they're still using the, the canoe routes, but, but, they're, but the Red River Colony is being brought into the wider influence and sphere of the industrial east um i guess the opening of the erie canal in on the american side i think that's in new york that had a lot to do with it that fueled american settler expansion west and so like um american expansion is happening uh, south of what is now the border and uh, so that's that's bringing this area like the red river settlement especially uh, into that that larger world and of course, better transportation routes. It doesn't take as long to travel from the east to Red River. And a larger influx of people from the east means that there's an increased susceptibility of indigenous communities to further epidemics. Not just smallpox is circulating now. Measles and whooping cough are, are in the mix. The way each indigenous community was able to cope or not with these new waves of, of disease uh, largely shaped the territorial distribution of indigenous nations on the plains that persists to this day. So whether an indigenous community was able to uh, weather the continued rolling epidemics or not, um, whether they were able to maintain uh, independence and cultural identity, or whether uh, their numbers were decimated so that they ceased to exist as a cultural identity, or whether they had to amalgamate with uh, with other groups, that, that process now in the um, in the monopoly period, that's what leads to um, the development of the indigenous communities that uh, that remain on the prairies. Yeah, so south of south of the border, we have uh, American expansion west uh, onto the plains now. Um, after the opening of the Erie Canal, just the the floodgates opened, and uh, white settlers are just coming out en masse. This puts an unsustainable strain on the plains bison herds. Uh, at this point, there's also climate instability throughout most of the mid-19th century, uh, and that contributes to an increasingly desperate competition for resources. Uh, at the Red River Colony, in the 1820s, uh, settlers faced shortages of bison meat, there were prairie fires, uh, crop failure, uh, major flooding, uh, and a whooping cough epidemic. Yeah, the flood of 1826, uh, still the largest recorded flood in the Red River Valley. After that, you'd imagine uh, many newly arrived European and Canadian settlers pulled up stakes completely and abandoned the colony. Wouldn't blame them. Uh, game depletion had started before the arrival of the Selkirk settlers. It started with the arrival of the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, obviously. But now in the Red River Valley and the prairies spreading westward, game depletion's becoming uh, an issue. Uh, the Anishinaabe, who had arrived in the region in the last half of the 1700s, they were ex already experiencing a shortage of game animals before the settlers came. By the time the colony was established, the land along the Red River was basically hunted out. Uh, that was before the arrival of the Selkirk settlers. The, uh, the land around the Red River was, uh, was hunted out. It, wasn't, uh, it couldn't sustain uh, a, the existing populace uh, even before the, the settlers arrived. As a result, the Anishinaabe were growing increasingly dependent 
on the new agricultural economy that was being established in the Red River Valley. Uh, remember, the Red River Settlement was established as an ar- as an agricultural settlement. Uh, the Red River, the soil in the Red River Valley is extremely fertile, maybe the most fertile in Canada. I've heard it called the breadbasket of Canada, if not North America. So it's an extremely desirable place to establish uh, large-scale agriculture, and that's what the Red River Settlement was for. That's why they're bringing over the Scottish crofters. But uh, the indigenous peoples weren't excluded from participating in the agricultural community at that at that time. Uh, the Hudson's Bay Company granted land, free land, to uh, their retirees, uh, many of which were indigenous or mixed European indigenous. Uh, and indigenous peoples um, did have their own experience and traditions with agriculture. So agriculture isn't a new thing uh, for indigenous peoples. And especially, uh, I would imagine, the Anishinaabe coming from uh, the east, they might have uh, more traditional experience with uh with agriculture and horticulture. Yeah, the, the Soto, as they were called on the prairies, uh, they were already experienced farmers, but their expertise, uh, it wasn't a match for the harsh conditions uh, in the Red River Valley and on the plains in the early 19th century. Uh, the climate is just really different here. It's a, it's a lot drier here than it is out east. The strategies for agriculture are a little bit different. It takes um, a lot of built-up sp- specialized knowledge and experience the bison were so plentiful they didn't need to rely on on large-scale agriculture to support themselves so everyone's sort of freestyling without a lot of success that's uh not just indigenous but the the white settlers as well um but despite these hardships the red river colony continued to grow throughout the 1820s this was due as we said to the uh the unemployed fur trade workers uh flowing into the settlement we're starting to get the establishment of agrarian missions, that is, like uh, white missionaries coming in and establishing agricultural missions with the indigenous people, trying to train them in farming, get them established uh, in a farming economy, integrate them into a farming economy. There's an example of that at uh, St. Peter's, which is north of Selkirk. The church still exists there. I believe the grave of Chief Pegwis is there as well. He was a, uh, a major figure uh, at that time. So these missions were established to help the displaced indigenous HBC employees become self-sufficient in the Red River agricultural economy. Uh, officials who sought to create an island of European settlement along the, along the Red River uh, saw the number of country-born people moving to the colony as a problem. This is what they called the indigenous and mixed race HBC employees, country-born they weren't as desirable as the like fully white European-born uh, and Canadian-born employees. This is uh, an establishment of a racial hierarchy here. Uh, by the mid-1820s, the HBC stopped uh, granting free land in the colony to its retirees to control what it considered the wrong type of growth. It's a good, uh, great euphemism there. Uh, those who depended on corporate assistance, that is a pension, uh, or would not commit themselves fully to an agrarian lifestyle, that is, uh, independent indigenous people who want to practice a more traditional economy, they don't want those types of people uh, settling on the land. So there's the HPC is, is stopping to grant uh, free land to their uh, retirees, their former employees, as they used to, uh, based on this uh, new racial hierarchy. Uh, by 1834, the company required its ri- retirees to purchase a minimum of 50 acres to settle in the colony. A decade later, it banned them from the settlement uh, entirely. So it starts off with uh, require- requiring its retirees to purchase 50 acres in the colony, then later banned its country-born retirees from the settlement entirely, if I'm reading that correctly. In St. Andrews, uh, between Winnipeg and Selkirk on the Red River, there's a St. Andrew's Church and Rectory, where there is a cemetery uh, full of uh, HBC employees and retirees from that era, which is kind of interesting. Lots of old houses. Captain Kennedy's house is a, is a famous one that still exists as a tea house and, and garden. Uh, people take wedding photos there and, and whatnot. So with this denying of land grants to uh, country-born HBC employees. This is the real beginning of a clearly racist land settlement and land control policy. 
this is the officialization of it, the institutionalization. Interesting seeing these, uh, the seeds of social problems, seeing their their creation by uh, humans made this stuff up. Uh, this is not like a natural thing at all. This is just corporate policy, as it all is. Like, all institutionalized racism is just like corporate policy. Talk to your HR person if you have a problem with that. Uh, yeah, we mentioned the prohibition of alcohol. Uh, of course, the uh, the HBC monopoly wasn't complete, even though it was like officially enshrined in law, in British law. Uh, they said HBC has a monopoly, a trade monopoly, de facto government monopoly. George Simpson is the sole ruler of uh, this vast uh, one one third of the current area of Canada. Uh, unofficial viceroy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are still free traders operating uh, during this time under under the HBC radar. The HBC can't control all this territory; it's too large for them. They can't be everywhere at once. So there's still there's still free trade happening. This is like small time independent entrepreneurial kind of stuff. And they're continuing the sale of alcohol, which undermines the HBC monopoly. Uh, and so the locals. The locals who have access to these free traders will trade with them instead of the HBC. They could probably offer lower prices as well. I'm I'm uh, imagining uh, if they're coming up from like the American side, they have access to uh, access to better transportation routes. Uh, the Mississippi River, the North Branch of the Missouri River, runs uh, for a while east west, just south of the Canadian American border. So like American traders could come up from there and. Uh, do their business in the, in the southern plains at least much easier than uh, the HBC who had to come through the Hudson's Bay to York Factory and then down through those routes through the Lake Winnipeg, Lake Manitoba, etc. Not as an efficient supply chain, I guess that's the term for it. HBC also instituted uh, the first like official game conservation in the area. Uh, the HBC imposed limits on certain fur-bearing animals in the de- in the depleted regions. Uh, in some regions, they instituted a complete ban uh, where fur trading posts were closed. Uh, local indigenous populations suffered, as you can imagine. Uh, the local indigenous populations were becoming more and more dependent on the fur trading posts and the fur trading economy. Uh, largely, they were completely dependent on it this time. By this time, especially with the dwindling bison herds uh, now, and they're congregating around the posts, uh, we're starting to see uh, famine conditions uh, emerge at this time during the monopoly period. Uh, Many indigenous people started uh, outright starving. Um, On page 63 of a quote that says, uh, George George Simpson himself acknowledged that the closing of Fort St. John reduce the entire population of the Upper Peace River to the utmost distress and lead to the deaths of many from famine. So this uh, corporate downsizing is leading directly to uh, the deaths of people by starvation. The closure of the post was not intended to benefit the people who depended on them. That's an important point. It was done to preserve the the continued existence of the fur trade and the preservation of the HBC's profits. That's another thing. It's just business. So some people have to starve and die, literally. Uh, it's just business. It's just profit. It's just uh, minimum investment, maximum profit. That's just the algorithm. You just get left out of the equation. It's still the equation. That's why in ordinary people need to need to control the economies and the land and the communities in which they live. That's why that's in, of the utmost uh, importance for the continued uh, uh, growth and flourishing of the human race. You can't get around it. That's basically what you would just call simple democracy. Um, so in the southern areas of the plains, uh, around what is now the, the border of the 49th parallel, uh, Canadian and American free traders, they ignored the conservation orders completely, and they encouraged the indigenous trappers to trap areas out. They're operating on the same algorithm. Minimum investment, maximum profit. It's just maximum profit. That's it. Whether you're a very large corporation like the HBC, or if you are an independent free trader, a small business person, uh, your operating algorithm is exactly the same. And it causes the same uh, amount of suffering to people and to uh, your environment, basically. It's just plainly unworkable. So keep that in mind uh, every time someone is uh, celebrating your local small business. They're operating on the exact same 
uh, algorithm as uh, as Walmart, for example. So just because a business is smaller doesn't make it less uh, unethical. All capitalist business is unethical. It doesn't matter what the scale is, basically. Talk about uh, talk about cooperatives instead, pools and and co-ops, and uh, you'll start to get a little a bit closer to something that's that could actually make could actually make a fundamentally positive difference uh, in your community and the world uh, at large. But no, just uh, just shopping local doesn't do it. And to be clear, when we're talking co-ops, we're talking specifically uh, workers co-ops. There's different types of co-ops, but workers co-ops are the one uh, where you have the ordinary people uh, who do the actual labor of the business who are democratically administrating uh, their own business on behalf of themselves. That's that's it. No board of directors, no one person or family in control of, of the business. Uh, everyone, if you have a stake in the business and workers have the largest stake in all business, then you have say, you, uh, you can democratically participate in running uh, your business uh, because it is yours. There's lots of different ways to go about it. This is not a new thing. You can look it up. So as, as, a, re, as a result of the trading post closures and, uh, and the corporate downsizing and the starvation, the famine conditions, some indigenous peoples turned on the HBC traders, uh, sometimes with deadly results. Some indigenous commercial traders, they simply left the regions in the conservation zones, moving to other areas to continue trapping or moving south to the plains and the parklands to become commercial bison hunters. Uh, the commercial bison hunt was still happening, although the herds were thinning out, they are becoming harder to find, yet to range farther west. Uh, the base of the bison hunt was in the Red River Valley, and the Métis were the dominant uh, hunting force in the area, and they were, had to range farther and farther west to find bison. Um, groups like the Plains Cree moved west, away from the HBC-controlled territory, and so they maintained their independence from HBC rule, uh, they, which they considered despotic, like we said, which it was. Uh, HBC authorities strongly opposed the migration of indigenous groups. They wanted each community to stay and trade at one post only. And they even used census information to set fur quotas for each post, and if indigenous populations were mobile, then they weren't able to get accurate counts. So they... They, uh, they needed the indigenous people to stay in one area to keep trading at specific posts so that uh, specific posts could remain profitable. If uh, people could just move around willy-nilly wherever they wanted, then uh, there would be no reason for the HBC to maintain a post in that area. A post is basically like a store or a general store at this point. They're intaking furs, but they have various uh, goods and essentials and knickknacks available to the local populace. And if the local populace is moving around, then you're, you know, you're not selling your goods to the, to the local populace. There's no one there. <laughs> they're, they're moving, uh, cause they're free to move wherever they want. They can follow the bison herds. Uh, they can, they can move to a different post. They can, uh, move to a, a place where, uh, there's more beaver and fur bearing animals. You need to secure that population and lock them down so that you can keep, like, sucking the profit out of them, basically. That's the idea. Um, that's why with free trade, free trade is always, like, uh, the free movement of capital. It's not the free movement of people. Uh, you're basically, uh, you need to control where your labor supply goes and where your, like, consumer supply goes. So you you need to keep people sort of... Uh, penned up in uh, national borders and, and whatnot. Not money, though. Money can flow around wherever it wants. Um, so the HBC started turning to uh, uh, like openly coercing indigenous groups to stay put uh, using gratuities and extending credit. So like free stuff, credit and free stuff, basically giveaways, store, <laughs> store giveaways and uh, cheap credit. Uh, credit isn't like such a good thing. It creates a bond of dependency. Uh, if you have credit with a company, like a credit card company or or a bank, you are basically beholden to them until your debt is paid off. Uh, it's in the credit lender's interest that your debt is never paid off. That's what interest is for, literally, uh, to keep you beholden and in a constant state of debt. They can't make money off you if you pay off your debt. So an extension of credit uh, is uh, 
is not such a beneficial thing. Uh, remember that next time your credit card company uh, wants to up your credit limit. Um, so there's a, now a growing working class in the Red River, and, and work, the working class is not a natural thing either. It's also manufactured by things like corporate downsizing, highland clearances, uh, things of that nature. Uh, the HBC no longer had to import laborers from Britain. Uh, by 1830, 20% of uh, its employees were country-born. By 1860, 50% were born in the Northwest. Officers, that is the management, uh, they called them officers at the time. Wonder if we still would call them officers, <laughs> what that would be like for workplace culture. Uh, they were mainly still from Britain, and they found the country-born employees unmanageable. They still do. <laughs> you ever notice like a big cultural difference between like uh, the management in your company and the peop and the uh, like the frontline workers? That's on that's on purpose. Um, and uh, that uh, that division of uh, of culture between uh, frontliners and management goes all the way back to the mid 1800s here with the HBC. By the 1850s, the the uh, population of the colony was 8,000 people. It's way bigger than that now. Manitoba has a population of over a million. It still was pretty. It was sizable uh, for the time. Biggest population center in the Northwest by far. Um, the bison hunting economy was largely controlled by the Métis, as we mentioned. And uh, declining bison leads to increased competition among indigenous groups. So we have inter-ethnic violence breaking out uh, due to this. Competition for scarce resources leads to violence. Wouldn't you know it? Um, international demand for hides outpaces local demand for meat. And the Red River is left short of meat, so the international trade takes precedence over local essential provisioning. Uh, if you remember the Battle of Seven Oaks, this this is what led to uh, led to that. The HBC was shipping pemmican out of the Red River when the uh, Northwest employees, uh, who, who were largely Métis, controlled the bison economy, uh, and the local populace needed that pemmican. Uh, the HBC was appropriating it and shipping it out to their uh, posts in the hinterland. This is kind of the same idea. International trade takes precedence over essential provisioning. So the NWC and HPC merger didn't really solve that problem. Uh, the, so the Eastern Plains bison herds are now hunted to extinction by the 1850s. And the hunting, uh, the hunting grounds were between the forks of the Red and Sinboin River and the southern shores of Lake Winnipeg. I believe that's what they're talking about when they're talking about the, the Eastern Plains bison. That'd be the Red River and what is now Manitoba, Plains bison herds. So they're, they're gone by the 1850s. The, uh, the bison hunters have to range farther and farther west. So we mentioned before, the completion of the Erie Canal in the 1820s brought an explosion of settlement to the American frontier. New forts and trading posts were being established along the uh, northern Missouri River on the American side of the border. And these attracted indigenous groups south. Uh, which siphoned trade off from the HBC posts uh, north of the, of the 49th parallel. Uh, the sedentary horticultural indigenous communities on the Missouri River were destroyed by this influx of traders and the pathogens that they brought from the east. Uh, in, a, in 1831, smallpox killed half of the Pawnee Nation. Uh, the U.S. government initiated a vaccination program, but many indigenous groups on the upper Missouri refused they already, for good reason, did not trust the U.S. government. Uh, these groups were particularly hard hit by the next epidemic in 1837, unfortunately, uh, which killed 17,000 people and turned the area into one, quote, quote, one great graveyard. Uh, the expansion of the Mer American frontier was exceptionally violent and was, was accompanied by mass intentionally inflicted suffering. This makes indigenous groups extremely skeptical of anything that the U.S. government is going to do, uh, including refusing aid that uh, would help protect them in the form of a uh, vaccination program. It's just a tragic situation. Um, the Mandan people suffered a mortality rate of over 90% and ceased to exist by January 1839. Uh, north of the 49th parallel, the HBC provided medical assistance to afflicted communities, but it wasn't done altruistically, obviously. Staff at posts looked after the sick and the elderly. 
so that able-bodied men could continue the commercial fur trade. Sick people were brought to the trading posts where the trading post staff would look after them so that uh, indigenous men could continue the fur trade so uh, on behalf of the HBC company to go get furs to trade to the HBC who is are now personally looking after their sick uh, loved ones. So that's just an exploitive situation. They're dependent on the fur trade even for their health. In order to receive medical care, they have to continue uh, fur hunting, essentially. So that's a coercive situation, not altruistic. Uh, there was a highly successful vaccination program in the Swan River District, led by Dr. William Todd. Uh, he himself was a smallpox survivor. Uh, most who could obtain an HBC vaccine did so. Same as now in the COVID era, era most people who could who can obtain a vaccine can do uh, have done so and will continue to do so. Some groups traveled a far distance to Dr. Todd's post. Uh, other initially hesitant groups uh, would accept a vaccination only after speaking with Dr. Todd personally. So he seems to be held in high regard. Uh, highly vaccinated groups such as the Plains Cree and the Soto took over territory from the less vaccinated or unvaccinated groups decimated by the epidemic. Uh, the Nitsitapi and the Assiniboine were particularly hard hit. It'll be interesting to see post-pandemic what the if there's any like uh, large demographic shifts due to, due to uh, the unvaccinated population. Um, uh, the Assiniboine people were particularly hard hit. That was due to having larger numbers and having larger numbers of people in each community. So I think they were once the dominant group on the plains or one of the most dominant groups on their plains and their numbers would not recover after this. They're uh, not particularly numerous as far as I know uh, right now. They do still exist. There are uh, Assiniboine reserves. They were once the major force uh, on the plains, uh, but not after this point. Uh, quarantine measures were also used with success. In 1844, an outbreak of scarlet fever was contained in Red River. Uh, in contemporary terms, that's a lockdown. So lockdowns were work. Vaccines and lockdowns, folks, seem, seem to work. Not a new thing. And also, you don't need uh, Pfizer or the government to tell you to do it. Communities can just do these things themselves. Reserves here in Manitoba were enacting their own uh, lockdowns and setting up checkpoints and border controls essentially at the reserves to control uh, outsiders coming in and spreading the COVID pathogen. So that's a, a marked contrast to the, uh, the Freedom Convoy folks who don't want any of those things. You can understand uh, skepticism about uh, government and corporate uh, measures. If you're not committed to ensuring the best practices for uh, preserving the health of yourself, your family, and community, then you're not acting in good faith and nothing is going to come of your skepticism or paranoia. But if you want to uh, actually take care of your community and go above and beyond uh, what the government and uh, corporate pharmaceutical companies want to do for you, that's absolutely 100% uh, good. You can't go wrong there. So the issue isn't like vaccines, lockdowns, obviously. Um, these were things that were working in the 1800s here. So to be skeptical about those things now is uh, nonsensical, pure, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know why. I don't even know why. But let's try not, I'll try not to get to too ranty about this. Let's, let's move on. Uh, the fur trade was also under threat from foreign influences that Simpson and the HBC could not control. So at this point, the taste in fashion ha was starting to shift away from furs. Uh-oh, that's bad news. People were preferring fancy hats made out of other materials. Uh, silk hats were growing in popularity. Bad news for the fur trade. So the thing, the market, the industry, the fashion fad a very long-lasting fashion fad, should say, uh, was fading and changing. Uh, the aristocratic and middle-class tastes in fashion were changing, and that <laughs> meant that the entire economy uh, in this region, in the Hudson's Bay drainage, drainage basin, was under threat, that people were, uh, whole indigenous groups uh, were eliminated, uh, gave their lives for, were now starving for, uh, 
their European taste had changed. So sorry, fur trade. Sorry, Northwest. Sorry, starving indigenous people. We like silk now. Don't need your furs so much. So what what are you going to do? Obviously, this leads to increased hardship for everybody in the HBC-controlled territory, as everybody in Rupert's Land, remember that's what this place is called at the time, what the Northwest was called, basically. Everyone in Rupert's Land depends on the fur trade in some form now for survival. Indigenous people are basically completely dependent on it. Uh, Their traditional pre-fur trade uh, ways of life are long gone, centuries gone. All the white people here depend on it. Everything depends on, on the fur trade. So... Partly due to humanitarian concerns over the ravages of continuing epidemics, large-scale missionary work now begins uh, outside the Red River settlement in the 1840s. That's what the St. Peter's uh, agrarian mission uh, was all about. Uh, that is ramping up the uh, the missionary work that would obviously lead to uh, things like residential schools later. But this is a foreshadowing of that. The missionaries are coming in now. Catholics, Anglicans, mainline Protestants, uh, you know, all of them. So, um, George Simpson was not a fan of the missionaries, but concern for deteriorating trade conditions for the HBC led him to accept their presence. If it's good for profit, he'll accept missionaries. Keep that in mind. I mean, if it's good for profit, all corporations will accept missionaries. That's, that's what they do. That's their relationship. Okay. Missionaries were a cheap way for the HBC to have the people living in their territory cared for to some degree without the HBC having to pay for it. That's the secret. Missions also kept the otherwise mobile populations fixed in place so they could continue participation in trade in remote regions, even during disease outbreaks. Fixed populations are very important to the HBC, like we mentioned before. Missions provided life-sustaining essentials while simultaneously they concentrated populations more susceptible to infection. And church services sometimes became super spreader events, uh, as they did during COVID. As indigenous people converted to Christianity, they often succumbed to diseases contracted at the missions and these church services, ironically. So, gaining uh, eternal life in heaven at the cost of uh, life here on earth, I suppose. It's not funny, but it's something. So, the HBC could offload their, like, healthcare costs, basically, on these uh, missionaries and uh, the congregations that send them out, which is very good for the bottom line. That's why the HBC likes them. Or didn't like them, but tolerated them. Uh, Okay. In the 1840s, Métis free traders developed the link between the Red River Colony and the American frontier. So, that's interesting. That is, uh, they've developed... A trade link between the Red River Colony and Minneapolis-St. Paul, basically the uh, Mississippi headwaters. Uh, that's a that's a major trade link uh, and transportation link. That's uh, it's much more efficient to come up from the uh, the Mississippi up to the Red River and then into the colony than it is to come through uh, the Hudson's Bay and York Factory or from the east through like the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes, or I suppose. St. Lawrence, the Great Lakes, then to Lake Superior, and then overland through the canoe routes. Opponents of the HBC monopoly took up a petition, and that was uh, signed by 10,000 people in the colony. So there was a a growing free trade uh, movement that was uh, actively operating uh, outside the HBC monopoly, as we mentioned before, and actively undermining it. And that's that's growing in strength. So the free traders were definitely developing a closer link to uh, the Minnesota territory than the uh, than the HBC monopoly. Um, from page seventy one of Clearing the Plains, uh, at the bottom, I'll just read it. The most vocal English critic was actually a native of the Northwest with experience in the fur trade. Alexander Kennedy Isbister submitted his critique of the HBC monopoly to an inquiry in the British House of Commons in February 1847. So the British House of Commons, the British government was uh, was aware of the situation, and uh, this is someone who was uh, informing the British government of what life under the HBC monopoly was like. So he attacked the monopoly charter on a number of points. The first was that the HBC had, and I quote, to the utter impoverishment, if not ruin, of the natives uh, acquired 
a princely revenue through its monopoly. Uh, his second point charged that the company had undermined uh, indigenous societies through the trade in liquor, uh, which he called a deadly and demoralizing poison. His third point dealt directly with the connection between the fur trade and hunger among the, quote, the larger part of the producers. It was well established that, that uh, famine among indigenous peoples and the fur trade was uh, directly connected. Also, his submission also lashed out against the, the trading monopoly imposed by the HPC, which he described as, quote, gross aggressions on the rights and liberties of the natives. Uh, central to his Bister's critique was the connection between the fur trade and difficulty in securing food, uh, obviously. The mon monopoly conditions ensuring complete dependence on the HPC, which at this point is ensuring uh, a famine. You could call it a deliberately imposed famine. This isn't a famine induced by a corporate monopoly that was a aided, you'd say, at least the British government was aware of it, whether they intentionally induced a famine conditions or not. I am not the best at parsing these things or thinking them through. Did it have to happen? It was not inevitable, obviously. H history isn't inevitable. Uh, people do play a part. Uh, it says, Isbister's criticism of the HBC was eloquent and probably just, but it failed to persuade Parliament to revoke the Charter until the late 1850s. So, I guess the British government could have revoked the Charter. At this point, free trade could have uh, uh, could have actually delivered some aid and improved conditions for the local population in the Northwest. Rupert's Land and the uh, Red River Colony. The British government chose to maintain the monopoly versus opening up trade. Probably they were uh, wary of encouraging too many uh, ties to the American economy and the Minnesota territory. I'm sure the Americans would have uh, loved to uh, annex uh, Rupert's Land or the Red River Colony at least. But uh, despite this continuing monopoly, by the 1850s, the uh, Northwest's integration into the American and global economy was too strong to ignore. Uh, to maintain the monopoly and to secure the Red River Colony, Britain sent 400 soldiers to the Red River uh, in 1846 to secure it from possible American attack. Uh, that's linked to the struggle over the Oregon Territory that was happening at the time. Uh, labor unrest threatened HPC stability from within. Uh, so we have, like, if not worker organizing, at least, like, a worker militancy uh, happening. Wor workers employed as boatmen began agitation over working conditions during, this is during the Monopoly era. And uh, agricultural settlers of mixed Orkney and indigenous heritage began unsanctioned immigration westward into the Coppell Valley. Uh, so they're basically starting their own uh, self-initiated colonies at this point. Um, at Turtle Mountain on the American side, a failed treaty negotiation in 1851 led to a land rush by American settlers and the disposition of the Turtle Mountain Ojibwe. So, you know, the HPC monopoly by the 1850s is beginning to put under be put under considerable strain. Uh, the, uh, the writings on the wall for the monopoly period at this point. Uh, indigenous groups resisted increasing European settlement. Chief Peguis uh, petitioned the uh, Aborigines Protection Society in London. I guess there was such a thing as that at the time. Uh, he petitioned them for help in completing a treaty due to fears of impending mass invasion of settlers. So he was he was trying to get ahead of the curve of the uh, the mass influx of settlers and wanted to initiate treaty negotiations, uh, I guess, with the HBC or the British government prior to that happening. The treaties wouldn't de wouldn't come until later, like uh, the 1870s, like 15, 20 years later. Um, in 1857, uh, the Hind Expedition met with the Council of Plains Cree, who sought to establish a toll of tobacco or tea for permission to pass through their territory. So that so the Plains Cree are attempting to establish uh, sovereignty over uh, the territory where they live. Uh, they had stopped seeing whites as allies or in any way beneficial to them, and now regard them as outsiders and, uh, and as others. And they saw the whites as responsible for disease and hardship. Uh, the Plains Cree numbered about 12,500 at the time, most likely outnumbering the Red River colonists. 
uh, but their numbers decreased year by year due to ongoing epidemics. So this is the, I guess, the high point of the of the Plains Cree who are trying to remain as independent as possible. Uh, they don't want to be brought under the control of the monopoly economy. Uh, they're trying to establish sovereignty over over their land. But unfortunately f- for them, disease and epidemics undermine that. They weren't able to. They weren't able to establish it, but it's interesting that uh, that they're trying to establish border controls over their o- over their land and trade controls uh, in 1857. Uh, in 1858, gold was discovered on the Fraser River in what is now British Columbia. In the rush that followed, uh, large numbers of Americans and Canadians passed through Rupert's Land on their way west, ignoring all authority of the HBC. So uh, this gold rush signaled that the HPC monopoly was functionally at an end, if not officially. Because uh, the monopoly couldn't do anything, the HPC couldn't do anything to, uh, to stem the, uh, the influx of gold rushers at this point. Um, a number of disasters immediately followed the gold rush there. There was a, there was a, a massacre of an unarmed indigenous group at Okanagan Lake by miners. There were uh, other indiscriminate killings, Starvation among the local populace resulted resulted from the destruction of the local fish habitat due to mining activity and devast- and a devastating smallpox outbreak, as you can imagine, in 1862 and 1863. So that's what the gold rush brought to the uh, people living in the area at the time. What a massive boon that gold that gold rush was to the indigenous people. Just just violence and destruction everywhere. Uh, Minnesota was granted statehood in 1858, which prompted a settler population explosion. And you can imagine the attendant violence and conflict with the indigenous groups, or what Americans called an Indian war, resulting in 500 settler deaths, the subjugation of the Dakota nation, and the arrival of 450 Sioux refugees at Red River in 1862. This is called the Dakota War of 1862, if you Look it up on Wikipedia. There's lots of info there. This led to what remains the largest single-day mass execution in American history. 38 indigenous prisoners were hanged on December 26th, 1862 in Mankato, Minnesota. That's within driving distance of where I live. I've been to the site. Uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. It's very harrowing. Uh, it was a public execution, obviously. Uh... It was a public execution on a square platform. These mass executions are always, uh, they're public to, uh, well, basically to show what you get when you, uh, when you mess with the U.S. Canada did it too. After the mass execution, uh, the prisoners were buried en masse in an unfrozen sandbar of the Minnesota River. So pretty contemptuous uh, on the part of the Americans there. You can look that up for more more details. This is happening during the time of the American Civil War and the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. Of course, Abraham Lincoln is uh, mostly remembered for uh, the emancipation of the slaves in the U.S., uh, but this also happened during his presidency, and uh, indigenous peoples in, in the U.S. Uh, don't look too fondly uh, back on uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, due to specifically this, him overseeing the largest mass execution in U.S. history. Uh, so by 1863, uh, 2,000 Dakota refugees had arrived at Red River, and this caused panic. Uh, they had a reputation for violence while well, they're fleeing from a war, uh, I suppose, if you call that a, a reputation for, vi- for violence. I'm not sure how that how that resolved what happened with the Dakota people there. Um, the first uh, steamboat arrived in the Red River Colony in 1860, apparently unannounced. as It caught the local population off guard. I guess this is just, uh, you know, this is a steamboat coming up from Minnesota, uh, up the Red River. Um, it wasn't, uh, wasn't announced. Hey, steamboat, we're here, probably doing some trade. Doing some free trade here. Um unsanctioned and unregulated flow of alcohol resulting from the free trade established with Minnesota was a serious problem in in the Red River. So we have uh, the HBC unable to maintain its alcohol prohibition. Uh, By this point, the agricultural economy becomes inevitable. That's really the only option they have left for sustaining the local populace. It's just out of necessity. 
have to switch to agriculture. Uh, By 1862, the extermination of bison in the Red River area led the HBC to consider establishing agricultural colonies in the Saskatchewan district. So they're considering expanding their uh, agricultural program to Saskatchewan now. Some indigenous groups now have independently begun cultivating crops of their own at that time. Food shortages were common in the Red River in the 1860s still. So in in 1863, uh, the HBC is sold to the International Financial Society. The fur trade is is drying up. The fancy hat fashion has shifted to silk. Demand for furs has dropped. The food supply on the plains has, uh, has been hunted out. People are suffering, and the bottom line is suffering. Time to pull up stakes and sell off the HBC if you are a shareholder. Uh, they've decided to sell it to a group called the International Financial Society. The uh, The International Financial Society Limited uh, is just a group of prominent London bankers. So the HBC shareholders uh, sold out to London bankers. Uh, the monopoly would still remain intact for a, f- a few more years after that. But uh, the, end, the end was near. Uh, the fate of the Northwest fur trade as the driver of the regional economy is sealed. Uh, The next year, the government of Canada announces that the Plains can sustain a large agriculturally-based population. So the the government of Canada, by announcing that, is signaling their intentions to annex the Northwest and the Plains and Red River into the Dominion of Canada, or whatever it was called at the time. It wasn't uh, wasn't officially its own country yet. Shifting to the Western Plains now, only 50 Europeans were living in what is now Alberta prior to a gold strike near Fort Edmonton in the 1860s, after which the population doubled to 100. So in the 1860s, there were 100 European people living in Alberta. This is uh, in contrast to the Red River Settlement, where I think uh, there was like 12,000, no, over 8,000 people. Uh, maybe more by the end of the 1860s. Um, so largely, there were no, there were hardly any European derived people uh, in Alberta in the 1860s. So it just shows like how very quickly uh, settlement and development of a of a provincial and national identity and, and culture uh, has taken place. Um, both the HBC governor and the local indigenous population were opposed to the development of these gold fields. Despite this, Americans from Montana began arriving in increasing numbers. Uh, this is kind of interesting. This is like, uh, we've mentioned the forts on the northern Missouri River. Like, this is the, uh, this are the roots of the Western Plains and specifically, like, Alberta's ties to America and their association with and fetishization of America. Um, this early initial settlement was coming up from america and trade was being done through um these posts on the missouri river specifically at fort benton uh which wasn't very far south of the uh, 49th parallel uh so soon american gold rushers would have soon outnumbered all the existing uh, european uh, derived people in alberta so you have uh, you have more americans in alberta than like hpc people uh, after the gold rush. Uh, gold discoveries in Montana at the same t- period resulted in it being granted territorial status by the U.S. By the end of the Civil War, a boom town of 1,500 people emerged at Fort Benton, like we mentioned, at the uppermost extent of the Missouri River. Uh, citizens of Fort Benton include the in- infamous James Brothers, for you uh, Wild West folks out there. Uh, the town was a real, a real Wild West boom town. Uh, it was described as hell on earth by HBC servant William Gladstone. Lots of places could have been de- described as hell on earth, it seems like, at the time. Uh, meanwhile, disease and food scarcity ensured continued hardship for indigenous groups on the Western Plains. Horse raiding intensified in 1861. 1861 was described by the Picani or Piagin people, f- forgive my pronunciation, as the year we ate dogs. Uh, indigenous groups increasingly turned on whites, uh, flooding their territory, seeing them as responsible for bringing disease to their land. Like we mentioned with the Plains Cree, like this is the point where like uh, indigenous opinion about white people 
changed. There was a distinctive point, and it was this point in which they realized that that the whites, the Europeans, the Canadians, the Americans did not see them as equals. They did not see them as having equal human status. Uh, there were uh, institutional racial hierarchies now in the HBC. You can see with the economic downturn with the HBC, who is left? Who is left out? Who wasn't be? Who wasn't part of the equation? Who was suffering? And it's, they they discovered that they were on the bottom of this racial and economic hierarchy. So their opinion of of white people changed. Uh, I would say for good reason. I'm surprised that they didn't start turning on uh, white people en masse uh, well before this. Like, seriously. Uh, By 1868, starvation in the Red River loomed as grasshoppers ruined crops four years in a row. An international campaign was launched to secure assistance. The Canadian government promised financial aid but sent none. Instead, it began building a road connecting the settlement to Lake Superior, uh, which I don't think anybody asked for. This is still how the Canadian government works. If you promise aid, but uh, do something completely different. Uh, the, Of course, building a road connecting Lake Superior to Red River is that that's in the Canadian government's interest because it, uh, it improves trade ties between the Red River and the eastern population centers around the Great Lakes on the Canadian side. It undermines the uh, Minnesota to Red River uh, trade route. So that's why they did it. It wasn't aid that they sent. They're preparing their annexation of Rupert's Land, basically. So the HPC monopoly was effectively over. The little emperor, London clerk George Simpson, died in 1860. Chief Peguis, who was a signatory to the Selkirk Treaty, died four years later and the bison economy was finished. The new Dominion of Canada was formed in 1867. It saw the plains as the future breadbasket of the country, serving the needs for agricultural products in the eastern Canadian population centres. The next phase on the prairies would bring further unparalleled and permanent changes, if you can imagine. The story is not over. The next chapter into the 1870s, you have what is commonly known as the the Red River Rebellion, the creation of the province of Manitoba, uh, increasing uh, European settlement into the Red River Valley. Uh, That's when my family came over in the 1870s. So maybe we'll talk a a little bit about that in the next episode. So just a short recap of chapter four. Uh, the HBC, led by Governor George Simpson, tries unsuccessfully to maintain trade and a government's monopoly over Rupert's land. Corporate downsizing of redundant trading posts after the merger with the Northwest Company leads to mass unemployment of those dependent on the fur trade, driving, popu- driving a population boom in the Red River Colony. Racist land policies established in the Red River Colony, barring country-born HBC retirees from receiving land in the colony, are enacted. The HBC introduces alcohol prohibition and game conservation policies in the Northwest. The HBC oversees somewhat successful vaccination and quarantine programs, limiting spread of smallpox and other infectious diseases. Uh, The first large-scale missions are established in the Northwest, which weren't entirely altruistic. The HBC accepts them as it eases their burden of care for their employees and indigenous populations. The opening of the Erie Canal... Uh, leads to an explosion of settlements south of the 49th parallel. The state of Minnesota is established, and the territory of Montana is established. The colony of British Columbia is established due to the gold rush on the Fraser River. Population increases strain bison herds to unsustainable levels. The prairie economy inevitably turns to agriculture as bison numbers drop, and changing tastes in fashion decrease demand for furs. Links to the U.S. are developed by free traders, integrating the economy of Rupert's land with the U.S. and by extension global economies, undermining the ability of the HBC to maintain its trade and government's monopoly. Indigenous groups respond to changing conditions in various ways. They continue to be hit by constant rolling epidemics of smallpox, tuberculosis, measles, whooping cough, and other pathogens brought by increasing numbers of Eastern and American traders. Their numbers continue to decline, though they still outnumber the Americans, Canadians, and Europeans. Once large groups, like the Assiniboine, are decimated, some groups turn on settlers and white traders, viewing them as the source of disease and hardship. 
Some move westward, hoping to preserve their independence, like the Plains Cree. Others voluntarily attempt to integrate into the agricultural economy. Starvation in the Red River Colony in the 1860s serves as a pretext for the Canadian government's annexation of Rupert's Land. Canada sees the prairies as their agricultural hinterland, serving the needs of the larger eastern cities, setting the stage for the next phase of mass European settlement of the prairies. I think that about covers it for Chapter 5, the uh, HPC Monopoly years from uh, 1821 to the 1860s. I just want to read a little bit from uh, Howard Adams' book, Prison of Grass, to give an idea of what the HPC Monopoly period uh, was like for Indigenous people from an, indig- from an Indigenous person's perspective. Like we said the HPC monopoly was considered by the people who lived under it to be despotic, a tyranny. Uh, the Métis, in particular, viewed the uh, HPC uh, policies during the monopoly period as revenge for as revenge for the Battle of Seven Oaks. So, uh, on page forty-eight of Prison of Grass, I'll just read from there. Uh, after the union of the two companies in 1821, the Hudson's Bay Company immediately began its revenge against the half-breeds and Indians. Bay governors imposed even more severe restrictions and oppressive conditions on the native population than formerly. The renewed monopoly market kept many natives in perpetual debt to the Bay, psychologically as well as economically. The Bay imposed its debt dependency system deliberately on the native trappers. The new quotes from the report from the Select Committee on the Hudson's Bay Company to the British Parliament in 1857, uh, which says, An important witness... Alan McDonnell declared that the company's system was designed to destroy any capability the Indian might possess of emancipating himself from the bondage of, quote, an avaricious group of trading monopolists, end quote. He described how Indians who attempted to work at another op- occupation than fur hunting were harassed by the company. The object, McDonald said, was to, quote, prevent the Indians learning that there was another pursuit whereby they would become independent of the company and cease to be its hunters, end quote. Reading on, uh, restrictive conditions were imposed on the native people. For instance, trading or selling of furs between native people was strictly forbidden, and it was even against bay law for a native to make a gift of fur to a friend. Uh, then he quotes from G. Myers, A History of Canadian Wealth. The Hudson's Bay Company even prevented Indians from trading with other Indians, or making presents of furs to one another, or wearing furs, quote, and tried to use missionaries to tell the Indians that the anger of God would follow wearing a fox skin, end quote. Uh, then reading on, after 1821, it became standard practice for Hudson's Bay clerks to break into native trappers' homes with the assistance of Bay police and search for furs held for private use. If any were found, they were seized immediately, without payment, and never returned. On one of these bay searches, a trapper, after, quote, having his goods seized and had his house burned to the ground and afterwards was conveyed prisoner to York Factory, end quote. The bay's policy extended to whites as well. Uh, and then he quotes from A.H. de Tremauden, Histoire de la Nation Métis dans l'Ouest Canadien, forgive my pronunciation, and remember all these racial terms are common of the period. This book was written in the 70s, reprinted in the 80s. And this is an indigenous person himself, a Métis person, using these terms. Okay, so the base policy extended to whites as well. Armed constables received orders to search houses suspected of concealing furs bought from Indians. In the execution of their duty, these men committed many revolting acts. Constables went so far as to burn the house and destroy the traps of two French Canadians at Lake Manitoba. One of the men was blind. For a like offense, a tinsmith of Italian origin was imprisoned and then deported. Reading on. Now that the Bay had absolute power, it became increasingly tyrannical in its endeavor to make even greater profits. He, qu- he quotes A.H. de Tremauden again. White hunters could neither sell their pelts to foreigners nor take them out of the country to sell them. It was the company that set the prices everywhere, and it goes without saying that the hunters' profits were slim. However, they were greater than those of the Indians, who were cheated unmercifully. For example, an Indian would receive only one shilling for a skin, where a white would receive twenty shillings. Then reading on, a gun that sold in England for... $4.50 was sold to Indians and half-breeds 
For five silver fox skins, a value of $250, cotton checkered men's shirts were sold for seven beaver pelts, a profit of over 2,000%. However, some historians argue that paying higher prices to natives for furs would not have encouraged them to trap more. Then he quotes from E.E. Rich, Trade Habits and Economic Motivation Among Indians, Canadian Journal of Economics and Political Science, Volume 26, 1960, page 46. A rise in prices would lead to the Indians bringing down less furs, not more, because the Indian did not react to the ordinary European notions of property, nor to the normal European economic motives. Reading on, this is probably true. If the Indians had fully adopted the profit motive, they might have forced the company to pay higher prices. As it was, they had no ideological incentive to do so, and were doubly vulnerable to exploitation. Bay traders also made great use of alcohol, particularly rum, to exploit natives even further, and, in spite of resistance by half-breeds and Indians, Bay officials continued to give themselves greater powers for enforcing the law in the Northwest Territories. As a result of the Bay's exploitative practices, native people became increasingly aware of their persecution and more united against it. Half-breeds who made up two-thirds of the population began to demand that the Bay be accountable to them and that they have some voice in the administration of the Northwest. In 1845, half-breed leaders demanded relaxed fur trading policies, but company authorities refused to make any concessions. Four years later, native people felt that they were strong enough to take a stand against the Bay. When a young Métis was charged for trading without company permission, the half-breeds organized a protest and demanded that the charges be dropped. Uh, Then he quotes from G.F.G. Stanley, The Birth of Western Canada, published in 1936. The whole question was brought to a head in 1849, when Guillaume Sayer and three others were arrested and imprisoned for trafficking in furs. Although convicted, Sayre was merely dismissed with an admonition in view of the hostile manifestations of the Métis, 300 of whom, led by the fiery Louis Riel Père, and armed with rifles and buffalo guns, surrounded the courthouse. The Métis hailed the decision as a virtual victory for their cause. At the same time, they issued a manifesto of civil rights demanding that free trade be allowed at Red River, that half-breeds be represented on the local council, and that court proceedings against French half-breeds be conducted in French. The power of the half-breed nation became recognized for the first time in 1849, not only by themselves, but by the Hudson's Bay Company as well. So there's more. This gives you a little a little insight into uh, what the HBC monopoly conditions were for Métis and other indigenous uh, people, even for, uh, for white people operating outside of the officially sanctioned monopoly economy. Uh, you can see uh, the Métis were already, they already ha- were self-aware as a nation. They had a distinct cultural identity by this point. Uh, they had, they were active in councils. Uh, they were opening trade to Minnesota. Um, they were real like movers and shakers in the Red River at, at that time. Like they were organizing and advocating for self-rule, for sovereignty over the land that they uh, occupied. They issued a manifesto of civil rights and demanded free trade be allowed at Red River. So, like, they're advocating for language rights. This history is all is all interesting stuff and very applicable and is extremely useful for helping to uh, to understand even the, like the times that we live in in this area. You can see how it all goes back. Talking a lot of free free trade, like free trade versus versus monopoly, language rights, indigenous sovereignty public health initiatives, vaccination programs, quarantines. It's all uh, its all very fascinating. And uh, yeah, so we'll wrap it up there and we'll do uh, chapter six next time. Catch you later. Bye.